Hi, I'm Darius McDermott from Fund Calibre, and this is the Investing on the Go podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Wilner, who is the elite rated fund manager on three fixed income products at M&G, the M&G Optimal Income, Strategic Bond and Corporate Bond Funds. Richard, thank you very much for taking the time to come and talk to us this morning. Thank you. So I'd like to really focus on Optimal Income, which uh, is now 15 years old since its launch in 2006. This is your most flexible fund. Maybe just give us a quick rundown of how you've enjoyed that flexibility and how it's actually helped give returns for investors over the years. Well, it's uh, it's uh, very much uh, a fund that's looking for the optimal income stream, hence, hence its name. We think that every asset, whether it be uh, a bond, an equity, a property, uh, the income stream it generates is uh, uh, what you're buying. And that income stream is split into two compartments. One is how long you've lent for. Have you lent for a day or a year or 30 years? Obviously, the longer you lend for, the more volatile, the more you can make or lose in that investment. And secondly, how risky it is. Is it safe like a government or is it more risky like um, a, a, a lower-end investment-grade company like British Telecom? Or is it very risky, let's say, something like a high yield like Jaguar Land Rover, something like that? So, you know, they're, they're the three areas that, that we look at really is in terms of having that flexibility to look at, find the best income stream from a duration and the credit perspective. And what this fund allows us to do, it allows us to take those views. Normal bond funds are very constrained. So the bond funds I run are constrained, less constrained than many of our competitors. But no, they're there for a purpose. They're a building block for a portfolio. This is a, a go-anywhere bond fund, uh, and we're looking for the best income stream we can find. And we find an attractive income stream, we'll own a great deal of it in the portfolio. And we find something that's uh, less attractive, then we'll um, uh, avoid it uh, in terms of, of taking that particular risk. The great thing about this fund is obviously it started in 2006. And uh, the thing that's helped the fund is there's no point having lots of flexibility if nothing's happening. Uh, and I'll tell yeah. you, as we all know, a lot's happened from 2006 through to now. We've had a number of you know, economic cycles, a number of credit cycles. And so it's not just the nature of the fund that matters, but it's the nature of the uh, environment that fund exists in. And that environment is still very much alive today. Markets are very interesting, very exciting. Uh, and therefore, having that flexibility, I think, is a very, very good thing to have in your portfolios. Well, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about the environment. But I'd like firstly to go back, say, around 12 months, because it was an exceptional year in the bond market in 2020, and then follow it up with where you are seeing opportunities in the bond market today. So 2020, um, lots of fun for you or, or lots of stress or, or a mixture of both. Give us a little recap of what, what you saw and, and the type of opportunities that you, you took in Optimal Income. I think 2020 was the most difficult year that um, uh, investors faced, whether it be me or, or your clients or you. Uh, it's been a very, very volatile, very dramatic year, especially um, this time last year in February, March. Um, I've seen some comments that the actual implied, the actual observed volatility in markets uh, around uh, 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 the COVID situation was worse than in 87 or 29 or, or 2000. So you've had some huge volatility, not only in equity markets, but in bond markets where, where, where it's been quite dramatic. And so that period was particularly, uh, you know, uh, dynamic. 
uh, and all the association difficulties come with with that particular area. Um, so it was a dramatic and uh, a harder year to work than other years. The strange thing is, you know, we look back on the year, we sit here today in the stock market, a lot of the stock markets are about where they were. Uh, government bond yields are generally about where they were before the crisis. Corporate yeah. bond spreads are about where they were. So when you look at where we are now, it's very different from the, the, the huge moves we had last year. What we did last year is try to take advantage of those dislocations. So there's lots of companies desperate to borrow money because they thought there was recession coming. So there's lots of new issues, lots of people borrowing, raising capital. In order to borrow and raise capital all at the same time in a difficult situation, it meant there were lots of companies came to market we could take advantage of uh, and uh, lend them money to, to tie them over. A prime example of that would be something like Boeing. Boeing, um, obviously, we can all understand, had some difficulties in potential customer orders and order flow through the summer. And they did a, a record bond issue uh, and normally they don't need to borrow very much, uh, a very high quality blue chip credit. But obviously, in order to get through to bridge themselves through uh, uh, the, the pandemic, they had to borrow money. And that provided yeah. opportunities for us to, to, to buy that particular type of stock. And when assets dislocate, we tried to get involved. So we increased our exposure to high yield. Uh, we increased our exposure to long dated corporate bonds. And everybody was fearing deflation. And we weren't fearing deflation. Uh, and so we increased our exposure to index-linked bonds from more of a, a bond macro point of view. And I know you have the flexibility to have a small portion in this fund in equities. Did you use that or were actually those income streams that you described earlier, were they more favourable in the bond market than the than the equity? Uh, the equity was a, a lot more challenging for us. I mean, my bias on equities is a value investor, and we all know how value investing uh, has, has suffered uh, relative to, let's say, the tradition of growth investing um, uh, or the newer tradition of growth investing. Uh, so when we went through this particular phase, it was quite difficult because a lot of the things I had exposure to tended to be those cyclicals. So there's a bias towards uh, yeah. you know, uh, autos, oil, um, uh, it was biased towards those particular areas and, and they suffered. So the strangest thing was even through the crisis, the best example I can think of from a bond perspective is an equity we've owned in the past is Microsoft. We didn't buy any this time around. It was still too expensive on a value basis for our traditional measures. But yeah. during the crisis, the Microsoft equity fell less than the Microsoft bonds. So even though you can say, well, equity have underperformed bonds, the dislocation in the corporate bond market was so large, a long-dated bond by issued by Microsoft would fall as much or more in price than a long-dated equity. So when you have a situation where people are scared and chaotic, and the safer assets falls more than the dangerous asset, well, you've got to buy us to more focusing on the safer asset. So we tend to look at it that, that way around. So you no know, long-dated corporate bonds are quite volatile. And in this drawdown, there's some great opportunities, whether that be uh, long-dated auto bonds, high-quality bonds, AAAs like Microsoft. And so there was lots of opportunities there. Slowly and surely over the course of the summer as confidence returns, uh, you know, our bias has been remained towards uh, uh, these uh, uh, better stocks. And over the course of the year, we have bought and sold some particular stocks, but it's not been the main driver of what we've been doing. The main driver of what we've been doing is driven by the interest rate market and uh, our outlook for the world economy. But it makes us different. And I think it goes back to it's quite interesting. Now, this fund's had the ability to own equities since it was launched, the question you asked at the start in 2006. I think the UK stock market is broadly where it was in 2006. Yeah. 
So, which is quite a shocker when you think about it, if you'd sold that to me when we launched the fund. Uh, and so, uh, you know, having equities in the portfolio has always been, if you think about it, has been a, a structural headwind compared to what bond yields have done over the period where bond yields have collapsed. Yet, despite owning, you know, at times up to 12% of the portfolio in equities, you know, generally speaking, uh, it, it's helped us produce these better income streams. And a good example of that might be just sitting down now. If you think about an, a company, let's say, like uh, that's, uh, that we own, that's owned by other people in business, like Imperial Brands, you look at what the dividend yield is and the earnings on that is, and you compare that versus where their debt trades, or you compare that versus where long-term bond yields are, it's a lot more attractive way to gain income. Again, we use equities in a limited sense. We don't have any equity position yeah. more than a half percent of NAV. But I think that's a very interesting area, especially as equities have some kind of inflation protection. If inflation comes back, equities you know, have some kind of inflation protection in them, whereas fixed interests tend not to have that protection. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, many commentators make an observation, and you did again touch on it, that we're roughly at the same sort of yields for government and spreads on investment grade. And I thought a lot of people thought the bonds looked expensive last year. Do you feel that bonds are expensive generally? And where are you finding examples? I see you've got um, some emerging market debt in the fund at the moment. Yeah, yeah I think um, I think the sort of uh, investment grade is better value than high yield. So we have a bias towards investment grade from high yield if we look back through the histories of where they trade. Within investment grade, you tend to find better value in long-dated bonds, um, and you tend to find better value in dollars, where the central bank hasn't bought lots of corporate bonds, whereas both the Bank of England and the ECB have bought lots of corporate bonds, therefore distorting the market. Uh, so we tend to find better value in longer-dated dollar securities. Um, so within that, that, that bias in terms of where our asset allocation goes, it goes towards dollar, it goes long-dated, it goes investment grade. In terms of whether bonds are expensive or not, that's quite an interesting question. I mean, we are back at historical tight spreads. The portfolio itself has roughly got the same amount of cash and risk-free as it had before. Fairly defensive. We're about about a third of the portfolio is in cash or risk-free governments, which is actually the highest it's been since the fund launched. Uh, And it's the same as it was this time last year. Not surprisingly, spreads are the same. My positions are the same. There's a bias more towards cyclicals and a bias more towards uh, buying a little bit of emerging markets, which you touch on there, which have lagged, which we've bought a little bit of over the last uh, last month or two. Some attractive opportunities there. So from, from my point of view, it looks as though things are expensive, but there are a couple of things to bear in mind here. Looking forward, what is different in 2021 compared to what is different in 2020? A number of things have changed permanently. One, central banks are going to go for growth and governments are going to go for growth. So the risk of recession in the next two years is limited, assuming a normal course of events with the vaccine and and reopening. Secondly, on top of that, we've got pent-up demand. And we all need a break. We all need a holiday. We all want to go away. We all want to socialise. So there's a huge pent-up demand in there that will come through. Uh, And lastly, uh, you have a situation where a lot of the weaker companies have gone to the wall. So anybody who was weak and vulnerable in terms of a corporate sense has gone, which leaves a surviving cohort that's very strong. So mostly spreads are where they were last year, but the economic outlook is more rosy than it was this time last year. This time last year, I was expecting rates to be put up to slow the economy. 
rates are not going to get put up for a couple of years. They're going to run a high inflation, high growth environment for a while. And secondly, you know, the corporate universe we can look at, whether it be high yield or investment grade, is really healthy now compared to where it was this time last year. And therefore, you can have less victims of downgrade, less victims of default, because you have a healthier cohort than you had at the start of 2020. So I'm a bit more balanced than the people may be. So I'd, I'd argue myself for being sort of roughly neutral about credit. Uh, I wouldn't say I particularly think it's expensive. Uh, uh, and I think that differs from maybe some of the other consensus views out there, uh, yeah. I think. So the key question on fixed income as an asset class is inflation or deflation. Uh, I didn't actually do economics. I did a chemistry degree. And the first time we had QE post the financial crisis, I got onto Google and I went, QE, what does it mean? And it said inflation. Um, that was 11, 12 years ago. And we didn't get any. Do you think the huge amount of stimulus this time will be inflationary? And if I could fairly briefly have a sort of a, a one to two year view and then maybe a 10 year view on that. Yeah. yeah, I'm always. I always find it. My ability at science was always one of my weaker areas. Uh, but having done economics, apparently, I'm a bachelor of science, which I always find quite uh, ironic. <laughs> yes. Uh, so um, actually, you go back to that period it did create inflation. You know, so we look back through there, and there's this general sort of consensus that no inflation was created, but we did. Remember, the oil price went through the roof. Commodity funds were all the rage. Um, uh, you know, so there was quite a lot of inflation. Actually, the central banks, ECB. Paid and made a policy mistake of putting rates up to kill inflation ahead of 2012. So there was some inflation around, not, not exorbitant, uh, but there was some inflation around. This time around, I think the inflation impetus is stronger. Why? One, the monetary response is bigger. It's huge. Uh, second, the last time traditional economics about monetary and fiscal. What about fiscal policy? Last time we were going for austerity. We we're trying to sort the problem out. This time around, we're spend, spend, spend. So, uh, you know, typified by the change in the administration in the US. So this time around, we've got a lot more fiscal measures going forward. We had a lot bigger monetary response. And so we did get some inflation last time around. I think we should be able to get some this time around. If you print enough money, you get inflation. Uh, you know, argue what that number is, uh, but you can see it quite simply if you just went and gave a large, if you gave £500,000 check to every individual in the UK, you know, you would expect the price of certain things to go up uh, uh, and the price of money to go down. So, you now there is a way, way of creating this inflation. And I think we, we wrote something on our Bon Vigilantes blog uh, back in the tail end of last year, where I go into a great deal about this, uh, if anybody wants to look any further. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that the central banks want to get away from the zero interest rates so they can actually cut rates going forward. The only way they can get away from zero interest rates is to create inflation. So I think they've got a bias to create inflation. They need to get inflation up so real rates are negative. So it means they've got room to do something in the next cycle. And you look around central banks, I think they're becoming a lot more tolerant and relaxed about inflation than they were before. And they'll keep rates low for long. And that's good for bonds. Low rates is good for short-rated bonds. It's a question of how long-term investors react to the idea that uh, you know, their principal and their interest payments are worth less and less and less as inflation comes back. So uh, I, I think that it's a far more inflationary environment out there than other people may think. Whether it's a blip for a year or two or whether it's a permanent change, we'll wait and see. But I think a move to um, a more easy fiscal and monetary policy 
uh, in response to uh, the, the hard time uh, we've had economically uh, uh, and in response to the fact that we're running out of policy options, uh, maybe inflation is one of the policy options that, that makes it easier to do things going forward. Yeah. I always like to just pick out a stock or a bond, which some of our listeners may have heard of. And Kraft Heinz uh, is the one I'd like to just briefly touch on um, today. Tell us a bit about Kraft Heinz um, and you know, what's your investment case on that? Yeah, so Kraft Heinz obviously is a, is, is a large company. Uh, it's pretty much staple consumer goods. Um, uh, and it's a result of a merger uh, sponsored uh, by uh, uh, the great investor, Mr. Warren Buffett, who you look at his filings, he's still got a large stake in the company and therefore, you know, potentially a helper. If they need to raise, cap- raise capital, always good to know who the, who the shareholders are. Uh, and they went from uh, being investment grade to high yield. They made a big acquisition, took lots of debt on board. Uh, because they put lots of debt on board, uh, their credit ratings went to the low end of investment rate. That's triple B minus. Uh, they failed to deliver as quickly as they said they would. They, uh, and therefore, the rating agencies in early or early 2020 got impatient with them, said, you haven't delivered as much as you should have done. Your credit profile hasn't improved as much as you said it would do. And therefore, we're downgrading you. And this has caused an index problem. You know, certain people have a cutoff point. They say, if it's in the, in the index, I buy it. If it's out the index, I sell it. If it's investment grade, I'll own it. If it's some investment grade, I won't own it. And so it has to be a transition. And so it's not only is there a psychological thing, it is more risky. It's one notch lower. But obviously, there's a technical that comes with that as well. The description of this is they, they're called fallen angels. We can all see how equity markets, um, you know, if you're in, the, in an index or not in an index, it helps. And Tesla renting the index helped Tesla. Uh, so, uh, you know, these things are quite important about how they're used uh, uh, and how they go forward. Speaking to our analyst thinks that they're just delivering slowly and he thinks they will return to investment grade. So we speak to uh, our analysts on that uh, and Stephen, and he says, well, they have gone to some investment grade, but it's in their destiny. If they want to become investment grade, they can be investment grade. So what did they do when they went to some investment grade? They cut their dividend which means they have more cash to retain their investment grade. And so we believe that will return to investment grade, which is why, you know, we continue to add, it, add to it and like it. And why we'll tend to buy it long-dated, invest, long-dated issues. Because they used to be an investment-grade company, they've got 20-year, 30-year bonds outstanding, you know, the more volatile part of their, their bond capital structure, the one that suffers the most when their credit deteriorates, but regains the most when their credit improves. Uh, and that's why, you know, we have a, a large addition of, of those and we expect them to return to investment grade. Hopefully, you know, they've, they've, again, given the sector they're in, they've been helped slightly by the, um, you know, the change to stay at home and return to more staple food uh, over the last um, year or two. And the management have changed their attitude. Uh, the management want to retain their investment grade rating. And that comes back to the point we were talking about earlier. You know, credit spreads might be tight. But the management who survived this, they've now got conservative attitude going for the next two years. They haven't got a growth, let's go for it attitude. They have a conservative return to investment grade, save the balance sheet, raise capital, be defensive. And that's what I want as a bondholder. I don't want a firm manage, I don't want an equity manager or a, a management team who are going to transform the business. Equity guys want things like that. Transform a business, wow, all the upside. No, we don't want that. We want stable, conservative management who are very uh, uh, careful in how they approach. And they are custodians of the business, 
as opposed to being transformers of the business. Uh, and, uh, you know, Kraft Heinz uh, at the moment is in a very much a custodian phase, having gone through a rapid expansion through the transformation phase a few years ago with its large merger. Richard, thank you very much for talking us through uh, not only Kraft Heinz, inflation and your views, both backward and forward looking on the fixed income market. If you would like to see any more information on any of Richard's three funds, the M&G Optimal Income, Corporate Bond or Strategic Bond Fund, please visit fundcaliber.com. And if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, please also visit Fundcaliber or any of your usual podcast subscriptions. Please remember, we've been discussing individual stocks to bring investing to life for you. It is not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these stocks at the time of listening. Mm -hmm.